Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. Hello and welcome to Shameless, the celebrity and pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. You're joined as always by Melbourne journalist Zara McDonald, that would be you. Hi. And Michelle Andrews, that would be me. How are we? We're good. We're good. Coming up on today's show, we want to start this week with a discussion we cannot stop having in the Shameless office. In this patch of rampant news coverage and profound stress, how do we find joy? Where is the light amongst the dark and where is the line between being educated about world events and being totally overwhelmed by them? Then we go to the biggest pop culture story of the week, the Woody Allen memoir that was pulled just before it was released to the public. But first, Zara, how was your week? Ah, Look, I'm not going to lie. It was surely not a particularly uplifting week for many people in the world. No. It has been a week that got progressively more stressful as it went on. But I guess what we wanted to do today is kind of put out something that is the antidote to all of that. Mm -hmm. I think in all of this very strange, stressful times, I've been searching so desperately on my podcast app and on my phone for things that are light and things that aren't covering coronavirus Mm -hmm. and things that are sad. So we're hoping today is going to be completely void of all of that. And to be honest, not even just today, hopefully shameless episodes into the future, naturally it's going to come up, but as a pretty steadfast rule, we don't want to be discussing coronavirus really wherever we can avoid it. Coronavirus to us will be like saying Voldemort in Hogwarts. Oh, we've already done it then. Well, I mean, the disease that must not be named. There we go, the disease that must not be named. (laughs) Beyond that, it was a pretty good week. I have to say, though, I said to you as I was sitting in the office on, I think it was Monday or Tuesday, excuse me, Michelle, do you think I look like Harry Styles? No, no, you said, do you think Harry Styles looks like me, which is a very important difference. It is much of a muchness, but I do think Harry Styles looks like me. No, it was because I was on the SMH homepage and it was announced that Harry Styles was touring around Australia, everybody 
everybody was very excited about that fact. And I looked at the photo and I thought, he looks kind of familiar. <laughs> <laughs> Did listeners point this out to you or was this no. all of your own volition? No, this is, this is way more embarrassing because this is the kind of rumour I've tried to start about myself. That Harry Styles is your doppelganger. Yeah, and it has backfired completely because we put it on Instagram. Michelle was like, I'm going to take a photo and see what people say. And people- Which, to your credit, by the way, you did look a lot like Harry Styles in that photo on our Instagram page. Go check it out at Shameless Podcast. And in also in my defence, I barely spent any time posing. That was like a second take, wasn't it? It was yeah. like a second take. You just had to tilt your head one way and smile with teeth and bang, got the shot. Big cheeks alert. Anyway, so we put it on Instagram and everything was fine and people were saying, duh, of course, she is Harry Styles. And then someone else said, actually, this is good, but it would be better if you tried Conrad Sewell. And my world came <laughs> crashing down. Now, this was beautiful because when I read that, I was like, what does Conrad Sewell look like? I Googled him and I'm not kidding. I almost spat out my tea. You look just like Conrad Sewell. It's the colouring. It's the face structure. It's the hair. Like more than anything, you and Conrad Sewell have identical hair. And I love more than anything in the universe that your two doppelgangers are men. Well, this is the other thing. People are like, haven't you found a, a woman that looks like you? But clearly not. Harry Styles and Conrad Sewell. Conrad Sewell, the only thing we have in common <laughs> is our hair colour. I might no. actually dime. I'm going to go and dig up photos of me brunette and see if I look more like Harry Styles then. We this did. is so self-indulgent by the way. We did poll the listeners. I think we had almost 10,000 votes on our Instagram story. Yeah. 85% said you said look more they, they said you looked more <laughs> like Conrad Sewell. Don't you try and slither your way out of this. They said you look more like Harry St- They said you oh, look more oh, like Conrad pardon, Sewell. Pardon? Annabelle edits this and she's not cutting that out. Fuck. More like Conrad Sewell than Harry Styles. Yep. Which I agree. You are spitting images of each other. We should get him on an In Conversation episode and I won't know who I'm speaking to. My I'll brother. be like, are you Conrad or are you Zara? I'm not sure. <laughs> anyway, so that was my week. I just kind of picked up my own doppelgangers and I, like I said, it backfired in my face. How was your week? My week was good. People say that you look like Conrad Sewell, but people keep pointing out that my knees look like they have faces on them. Yeah, interesting. They kind of do, though. Have you noticed this? Like, not have you noticed my knees look like they have faces? Have you noticed that this is like a weird swelling up of listeners who are noticing my knees? Well, I have to say I'd never particularly noticed your knees before. And I am just making the (laughs) assumption that they are beautiful knees, but I'd never kind of been drawn to the knees. You know what? They just don't stick out. I'm looking at them right now as we talk about this and I don't know how it looks like it in photos because I swear they don't look like they have faces right now. No, they don't, which is weird. And I think this is actually kind of a common affliction that some people have knees that look like faces in photos. (laughs) When we released our episode on Thursday with Jules Von Hep, I was messaging Jules to tell him the day before it was going live and he sent me that photo of you two and we looked at it and he was like, you should just Photoshop your face onto her (laughs) knee because her whole knee looks like a face. Why has that happened? Is this body shaming? I mean, I know I've body shamed your feet for so long, but like... Okay, I have bony knees. Like, whatever. I also had, like, Ultrawood... I can't pronounce it. I think it was pronounced Ultrawood Schladders when I was a kid. What is that? It's like some knee thing, like when you're growing a lot and your bone does stuff. Oh, please, don't pretend it's a bad thing. It means your knees have personality. Does it actually, Everyone though? wants a little bit of extra personality. Nobody wants faces on their knees. Are you fucked? What? I would want faces on my knees. No one ever... Co- this is the thing that gets to me, right? We're always in photos together and people will always comment on how cool your outfit is. And then the number one comment about me will be, does she have faces on her 
Okay, that is such an exaggeration. In the same way, I just lied that the polling said that I looked like Harry Styles. You just lied about that comment. So with that, I'm going to get us into the show. As you said at the start, Mish, we want to have a conversation that we keep coming back to in the office, which is how on earth do we find joy when it feels like the world and its news cycle is shrouded in such profound darkness? And I think this is going to be a little bit different for us. It's not really about celebrity or even pop culture. But to be frank, I think it feels, I don't know, maybe right right now because the world feels so completely different at the moment. And I think it all started the other day when we were sitting at this very table and a delivery arrived from HarperCollins and it was a book from Julia Baird that turned up and her new book had arrived and it was called Phosphorescence. Yes. And I did not know what that word meant. Me either. I Googled it and it is such a beautiful word. It's I feel like it's a word I'm going to want to use, but it's going to be such an obvious ripoff of Julia Baird's book title. As an aside, by the way, I find it so refreshing when someone puts their hand up and goes, I don't know what the fuck that word means. It's such a great level up. Did you just call yourself refreshing? No, no, no. Because I was listening to a podcast with Celia. This is such a tangent. I was listening to a podcast with Celia Pacola on The Guilty Feminist and Deborah Francis White said a word. I can't remember what word it was and I had no idea what it meant. And Celia Pacola in front of thousands of people put her hand up and went, what the fuck's that, basically? Oh, see, that, that is nice. I do appreciate that. I should do that more often because I will sometimes be in conversations where words are thrown around and I just secretly Google it later. Conversations with me or smarter people than me? Way smarter people than you. <laughs> anyway, so Phosphorence arrived on our desk and it's basically a book on, well, it's titled, it's subtitled as a book on all wonder and things that sustain you when the world goes dark. And I looked at it and I thought, what a time in the world or what a time in the year to be dropping a book like this. Its cover is so beautiful and I was so drawn to the writing. And even we just skimmed like the first few pages and we were like, this is a really lovely book. Like Mm -hmm. I felt a bit warmer for having just seen it and skimmed it. Well, phosphorescence is the idea of living light. It's things that are lit from within through nature. And I find that concept to be so beautiful and I think I agree with you Zara I feel like right now my phone is almost a ticking time bomb that every time I lift it up and I look at the screen and I scroll through news or scroll through my news feeds it is just so heavy and it feels like it's difficult to wade through all the stuff that is happening in the world and the latest developments and I'm finding it quite anxiety inducing to be brutally honest that it's overwhelming to read all of this negativity all the time and to feel like you almost can't escape it. Like you can't even go into our Facebook group, for example, sometimes without feeling like everyone just wants to talk about coronavirus, sorry, the disease that must not be named. And I'm not going to begrudge them for that because I'm the same. But it's like we're all kind of exacerbating the problem. We're all kind of egging each other on and making it worse and worse and worse and running ourselves into the ground. Well, yeah, and I think that's exactly it. And I think this morning was probably one of the first mornings in my whole life where I've woken up and looked at my phone and actually felt completely overwhelmed by the news. And we have worked in this industry for a couple of years now. But before that, I always kind of lived in my phone and read the news because I was studying journalism and I naturally gravitated to news like my head's always in it and I've never felt particularly stressed by that but I did feel this morning was the first time that my mood had changed because I'd woken up and consumed so much of Mm. it and I did wonder if that's why I was so pulled to Julia Baird's book because it really made me think straight away what are the things that I gravitate to that bring me light and how do I nurture that light and what does that even look like now? Well I think it's an important question because I think the 
24-7 nature of the news cycle now and how interconnected we all are through our phones and through social media has given us this misguided belief that we should be across everything that's happening all the time. I think we all put this pressure on ourselves that we need to be plugged in and connected and switched on. And if we're not doing those things, then we're suddenly ignorant or uneducated. And I think a really interesting question that's been raised for me and the people that I love in the last few weeks and even past couple of months since the bushfires even, is where is the line between being enlightened and educated, but then also being overwhelmed? Like, where does it get too much? And how can you hit that perfect balance? And can you hit that perfect balance at all? Because I think I've gone way too far, really, over the last few days. And I want to pull myself back to the point where I know what's going on, but I don't know too much. Well, I think it's really interesting that we started this segment with you saying, I find it really refreshing when someone says they don't know what a word means. Because I do wonder if we're completely overwhelmed by news and our consumption of it, because we never want to be the person in the room that doesn't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And it's not so much about being educated, but it's being the person that doesn't look like they aren't educated. Like the difference between those two things. Things. And I do think there has to be a healthier line. And it was really interesting to me that this was kind of the first time that I found myself being really pulled to very wholesome, pure, beautiful content. Like all I wanted to read was stuff that was going to nourish me and make me feel good about the world. Yeah. And I don't think there's any shame in that. I, I wrote a newsletter column for us a while ago and I quoted this wonderful author. His name is Rob Dobell. He's the author of The Art of Thinking Clearly. And I was first drawn to his work when my psychologist actually recommended him because she knows that I have an insatiable appetite for current affairs and for news stories and that also the news and current affairs isn't always great for an anxious mind. And what Rob Dobell wrote in his book is, most of us do not yet understand that news is to the mind what sugar is to to the body. News is easy to digest. The media feeds us small bites of trivial matter, tidbits that don't really concern our lives and don't require thinking. That's why we experience almost no saturation. Unlike reading books and long magazine articles which do require thinking, we can swallow limitless quantities of news flashes which are bright coloured candies for the mind. And I love the way that is presented because I agree with you Zara. I think the older I get, the more I am leaning into lengthier, meatier, softer in some aspects content. I don't want to have the really quick sugar hit from news anymore. And particularly in this climate right now, I'm finding myself wanting gentleness. Yeah, I think that word soft is so pertinent right now. Like I really do want something soft and I keep coming back to the word nourish. Like I want to feel nourished with the stuff that I consume. And I think it's why I tend to recommend the daily so much because I love news. Like I do really love news, but the way that podcast presents news is not in that sugary candy bite-sized way, but it does give you a more thoughtful sort of packaged insight into the, the happenings of the world. And I think that's helpful. And I think that keeps you educated, but I don't think that keeps you alarmed. Mm. And I think it's the balance between those kinds of things. Where do you find happiness and do you chase happiness? Because I think this is the thing that I've thought about more this week than perhaps I have in the last few years. Well, I think happiness is a very difficult thing to aspire towards. And I I love it when guests come on the podcast and tell us that they think success is happiness. And I think that's beautifully simple for a lot of people. I don't think that's necessarily straightforward for me. I mean, I, I suffer with a mental illness. So chasing happiness isn't always actually feasible. Like my mind is naturally geared towards anxiety and I have a chemical imbalance that means that I can go through depressive bouts or I can go through bouts that I don't have great control over. What I like to aim for personally is not necessarily happiness, but it is clarity. 
Like I can control how clear I feel. And when I clear out certain things from my life, I do feel like I understand what's going on more and I feel less muddy and murky. And when I have clarity, I'm more likely to think clearly. I'm more likely to be positive. I'm less likely to catastrophize everything that's going on in my life. Do you seek out happiness? Then we'll talk about how we actually seek out clarity, happiness, contentedness. But do you seek out happiness? No, I've never really gravitated to the concept of happiness. I've, and truthfully, I've always kind of been confused by the concept of happiness, kind of for similar reasons to you. I probably have more control over my happiness than you because of what you were just touching on with mental health. And yet even still, I don't really understand it. And I think it's because I've often looked at other people's scenarios and I think, well, none of us start on a level playing field. Like people have things in their lives, which means they are going to be predisposed to a much higher a time and therefore it's going to be much harder for them to find happiness. So I guess I've always been consumed by things that I can control and I guess it's for me I always come back to this idea of fulfillment like mm. I can control what I feel fulfilled by what literally fills me up and fills my cup up and then I kind of think well if I can control that and I feel fulfilled then I'm more likely to feel content and I kind of resonate more with the sense of contentment than I do with happiness and maybe it's kind of much of a muchness happiness and contentment kind of mean similar things to people but for me I do relate more to this idea of contentment Mostly because I feel like we assume happiness is this very bubbly, obvious, loud mm. thing. When in reality, I think happiness is much quieter than that. And I guess that's why I focus on fulfillment and contentment. Because I feel like contentment seems more achievable, even if it probably means the same thing as happiness. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, it's so true. We're probably just talking around in circles. I guess when I think of happiness, I think of a feeling. And I don't think you can ever feel one thing all the time. Like I'm going to have moments of sadness. I'm going to have moments of joy. I'm going to have moments of anxiety. But aiming for clarity or aiming for fulfillment seems a lot more tangible but then it's all like it just depends on your definition of it well this is why I find actual conversations around happiness very interesting and it's funny to me that we've never really had one on the podcast or to be honest it's interesting to me that I haven't really thought this much about it in such a long time because the more I dug into it and I wrote a newsletter column about it this week the more I dug into it the more I realized that I've always assumed that happiness this big elusive sense of happiness would come from something external or something shiny or something something new but I can only really find contentment and happiness in the things that are in front of me so it's much more about now looking at those things and actually perceiving them differently. Mm, absolutely I think the things that make me feel happy just to put a really nice spin on this actually because I know a lot of us are feeling down and scared but even in this time of profound stress I am incredibly fulfilled and I really genuinely do love my life like I think particularly seeing my sister give birth earlier this year, Amelia is now one month and one week old today as this episode drops. That has filled me with so much fucking joy seeing my sister become a mum and watching her breastfeed, which I know this sounds ridiculous and I have never understood. I've had conversations with you about this Zara since Claire gave birth. And also let me give a caveat. For some women, breastfeeding is incredibly difficult and this is not a reflection of that at all. Claire does not struggle with breastfeeding and she gets so much joy from it and watching her breastfeed Amelia, for some reason, I know it sounds bizarre, fills me with a lot of love. Like I feel a lot of love for my sister when I see her feeding her child and having that very maternal 
bond with her baby. And I, I would never, if you had played this to me five weeks ago before Amelia was born, I'd be like, what the fuck is that person <laughs> on? That is ridiculous. I've never understood all of this literature and emotion around breastfeeding. Because I always watch women older than me talk about it and talk about how much they love or hate it or in between. And I feel so overjoyed when I watch Claire breastfeed Amelia. I also feel overjoyed when I literally wake up next to Mitch. I know it sounds soppy and I know I am such an annoying romantic, but I genuinely feel so joyful when I wake up next to him and can talk about our sleep and can talk about whether or not I interrupted him in the middle of the night by sleep talking. See, you say that, but I also hate that you feel like you have to say it's soppy because I would be more concerned if people had a partner and didn't say that one of the yeah. biggest ways they find joy is through waking up next to them. Yeah, like, totally. I think we'd have bigger issues on our hand. I think for me, I'm trying to notice more when I feel happy so that I can kind of hold on to it. Mm-hmm. Is it obvious that I've started seeing a psychologist? <laughs> um, and I'm trying to like hold on to it and try to recognize what it looks like so that I can sort of sit with it for a while. And I think for me, it's when my heart is noticeably full and when I feel calm. I think those two things when they exist at the same time. So invariably, I think that means when I turn inward, which is what just like going to the market, my local market, yeah. finding time to get dinner with like my six closest friends when our like schedules never really align swimming at the beach being close to my family like they're really really simple things reading a book also lying in bed makes me so happy making myself a cup of tea like the second or third sip of a cup of tea when it's not burning my mouth I feel so much happiness when I drink tea it's like very wholesome things it's coziness and I wonder I mean I've had this like hypothesis for a few months now and I said it to you I think I'm becoming an introvert like I think I'm becoming more introverted as I get older either as I get older or with this job I'm not really sure what's causing it so it's funny because I have not I'm more extroverted I think than ever but yeah, you are going more introverted. I was like textbook extrovert when we started this yeah. job like very textbook would often only get my energy from other people and now the kinds of things that are making me happy are changing and because our world is so chaotic and I mean literally our kind of working world and and my world at the moment is so chaotic I've never been given the opportunity to stop and settle in and work out what makes me happy and why they make me happy. And I think those things are starting to change and they are those really kind of cosy, wholesome things that might just be making a cup of tea or not moving from bed. But it's great to point to it and it's great to take a second out of your day and figure out what brings you joy. Because if you don't, in times like this, you can just feel swamped. Like you can just feel like you can't get through the day. And hopeless. Yeah. Like there have been some days with the disease that shall not be named. I don't even know if it's a disease. Some doctor will probably message us. It might be an illness. It's a virus. It's the virus. It's the virus that shall not be named. I have had days where I've got home and had to take a nap because I'm so exhausted. And I think that is a stress response. But if we take the time out to think, okay, what's making me happy? What's filling my cup? What makes me feel alive? Then the better for all of us. Self-help and figuring out what makes you full and what makes you whole is so important. And Zara, I want us to go through as well. We didn't give any recommendations at the beginning of the episode because we wanted to get stuck into this and we both have a heap of recommendations. If you're feeling sad and if you're feeling stressed and frazzled, we can give you some things that definitely enrich our lives and make us feel full. Yeah. And I think the more I actually put these to paper, the more I was like, you know what, I should actually continuously go back to these things because I know these are the things that make me happy. Very recently, 
I've consumed the rest of Morning Wars, like the last two or three episodes. And I really don't think it's a coincidence. A, it's a really fucking good show. I know I've recommended it a couple of times, but it's really, really good. But secondly, there's something that feels so safe. I'm laughing, but I actually mean this wholeheartedly. There is something so safe about Jennifer Aniston and it might sound crazy, but I think if you grow up watching Friends or something like that and you've got someone that's often on your screen or has been on your screen for a lot of years of your life, then you see them again and it's like, oh yeah, that similar sense of nostalgia takes hold. I'm so glad you said that because you want to know what I wrote down. I jotted this down in my notes. I've been re-watching every episode of Friends in order on Stan right now. Why? Because it feels safe and nostalgic. Oh, there you go. See, that's exactly how I feel towards Jennifer Aniston. Rachel and Friends was my favourite character. So to then see her on another show that I love feels equally safe and nostalgic now. I always, always go back to this American life Mm. when I feel quite stressed or overwhelmed or even just sad. And I don't know what it is about that podcast. I think it's always been my number one go-to. You know, like that very loyal friend that sometimes you fuck off sometimes for things that are cooler, (laughs) but you'll always come back to it. Wow, that's a bit mean girl of you. I (laughs) I don't actually treat my friends like that, but you know, like a very stereotypical way. And the thing about this American life is because I think I first discovered the show when I felt lonely overseas, and I was sad after a breakup. There's something about it that feels warm and cosy and safe and very, very comfortable. Mm. They they help me make sense of the world. And sometimes the stories that they tell are so simple and with like no major punchline. And I still really love that. Like yeah. just hearing very human stories. Yeah. I want everyone, if you are feeling stressed, to go read number one, Zoe Foster Blake's writing. Everyone will know that we are big fans of Zoe, of course. We've had her on the podcast and I know that all of our listeners are huge fans of Zoe. Her writing is so uplifting and her latest book, Love, which is a collection of essays about love, not only for other people, but for yourself as well, is a truly delightful read. Like, pure happiness down on pages so Zoe Foster Blake's book Love I recommend I also recommend any books by Marion Keys I recommended her last week but Marion Keys is such a joyful witty writer as far as podcasting goes Dying for Sex I cannot stop talking about this podcast I mentioned it in another episode earlier this year but it is about a woman called Molly who is dying with terminal breast cancer and it is about her sexual exploration and her sexual escapades and let me tell you that six episode series will stay with me for such a long time it is the most incredibly life-affirming series and I've really feel sorry for anyone who doesn't take the time out to listen to it. That is how strongly I feel about this podcast series, Dying for Sex. Please go listen. I promise you will feel not necessarily uplifted, but you will feel more clarity about life and what life is about after you finish those six episodes. I still need to go and listen to it. I'm going to get on the tram today and actually put it in my ears. I promise you that. I think though in times like this, we seem to gravitate to people we trust. Like Mm. for me, it's a massive trust thing. I miss the high-low at times like this. They haven't been on air for a couple of months because I've listened to them for so many years that I do still find so much comfort in that routine and that habit. I go to Anne Helen Peterson's writing, who I've read for years, who writes for BuzzFeed. I will probably gravitate to Leanne Moriarty's books because Mm -hmm. they've been such a sort of fixture in my life for so many years. Anything Aaron Sorkin, like Newsroom and West Wing, I grew up 
up watching The West Wing with my older sister and my younger brother and we just became obsessed with anything Aaron Sorkin, particularly Newsroom when it came after that. And I think I will actually try and go back and watch Newsroom because there'll be something so comfortable and so warm about that. Podcast-wise, I don't know if this is going to be for everyone, but I do gravitate to slow, soft things like long form, which literally just learns about the art of how other people write. And then I think the ultimate one, like the ultimate comfort in your ear, are old episodes of Desert Island Disc with Kirsty Young's voice. Oh, Desert Island Disc is so good. To be honest, the Hamish and Andy podcast. Yeah, there you go. Something light and fun. I have listened to every episode of the Hamish and Andy podcast. It is so funny and you have to start at the beginning. So I started doing this podcast two years ago. Please start at episode one or episode five, however deep you want to go into it. But start a while back because the jokes build and that's what I love about it. Like they're threaded throughout and the narrative builds as you go further. You can't just duck into the latest one and get it all. Like you've got to have the context behind it. So please go listen to that if you haven't in a while. Also, how to fail with Elizabeth Day. Yeah. Elizabeth Day is an awesome journalist, an awesome interviewer. If you haven't come across her, she has episodes with the likes of Marion Keys, who you can tell I'm going through a Marion Keys phase at the moment. Marion Keys, but the episode with Fern Cotton is so beautiful and candid and honest. And then there's two interviews with Phoebe Waller-Bridge, which I definitely recommend as well. Other than that, Go buy yourself a nice shampoo and conditioner. I love the Kevin Murphy one. It makes me feel good every time I use it. It smells delightful. Go and buy yourself something little that will give you a bit of a boost because you deserve it. Tell you what I did this morning. I washed my hair and then I actually used my hairdryer to dry it properly. Like, don't you think that's such a small... Small wins. Small wins. I do think that I, when I look back at this list, just looking at my computer screen, I do feel like maybe all this means is that in times like this, I gravitate to people who seem calm and who seem smart because it makes me feel like all hope is not lost. And thank God for them. I know. And the one other thing that I've forgotten to mention, and I wonder if this would be on your list, but I think this is one of the main joys of my life is clothing. Like clothing makes me happy. Being able to put clothes Mm. on, it sounds so fucked. But I mean, being able to create outfits and be creative in that sense does bring me joy. I find it curious, Mish, as in one final point here, that it's interesting that not once have we mentioned Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, even though so much of the stuff that exists on those platforms kind of masquerades as content that empowers us or makes us feel more full Mm. like why the fuck do I spend so much time on my phone and platforms like this that can clearly contribute nothing to my state of calm or sense of happiness like I think this conversation for me has been quite illuminating Mm. and I've forgotten my biggest recommendation of all which is literally just disable notifications on Apple News so that you don't have these headlines and every little update interrupting your day and bursting into your life when you're trying to focus on something else just mute those notifications and seek out news when you can actually cope with it and handle it apart from that books podcasts good television and you're sorted and kevin murphy (laughs) kevin murphy hair products (laughs) which is so not sponsored at all coming up after the break the quick and dirty and then our rather conflicting thoughts on the woody allen book controversy but first a word from today's sponsor And now it is time for the quick and dirty. As always, we bring you the top five stories from the rough and tumble of the celebrity and pop culture news cycle. Michelle Elizabeth. Fine footed, high arched. <laughs> what else are you, Michael? Start again. You made me start again Michael last week. Michael Bublé's Andrews. You got to start again. Michelle Elizabeth, high arched. Michael Bublé Andrews. What have you got for me? I would have preferred rose gold and high arched footed, but I'll let it slide. <laughs> My first story: all the confirmed Batchy and Paradise stars and who the fuck they are. Since you've forgotten, that is from Pedestrian TV. Our weekly shout out to Pedestrian for 
really staying true to who they are with I, their headlines. <laughs> they do make they help us with our tone, I guess, by having kind of fucked headlines that they we just, can just read. They just don't stray. They know <laughs> what they do and they do it well and they'll never change. And God bless you, pedestrian. I have to say, I texted you last night and I was like, what the fuck? Is Abby on Bachelor in Paradise again? But clearly my world has moved so, so slowly <laughs> since I first saw Pat photos of her in what, like November? Yeah. So back in November last year, we were talking to Abby Chatfield about potentially coming to one of our live shows as a live show guest but she did say look I'm filming something hint hint nudge nudge and we thought at the time it's probably Bachelor in Paradise it got to this time of the year and you're like oh my god she's on it again I was like no hun it hasn't even aired yet that was only like five months ago somehow I felt like she had filmed it had aired and then she's filmed and then it was airing again which (laughs) clearly when you put it like that and it's been five months it makes no fucking sense anyway I just feel like I forgot that this was happening yeah I feel like it really slid under the radar we were also angry about the bachelor announcement that we forgot that batchy in paradise is on its way so of course friend of the show our beloved abby chatfield is on other notable contestants zara mcdonald jared Potplant woodgate i wasn't expecting jared Potplant woodgate to be back on so he and kira done for good Dunzo, and they have been for ages. What kind of journalist are you? They were on again, off again for a bit. Yeah. Mm. I'm sure lots of listeners were like, wasn't he with Kira? Anyway, Helena Sorzia, who is of, uh, what was it called? The Weight Loss Trilogy fame. Totally. Tim with two M's. I remember that guy. Kieran with two R's. What do you mean you remember that guy? He's like iconic in Bachelor Land. I know. I just didn't really watch Andy Kent's season. So I do feel like (laughs) a bit of a Tim double M fraud because I felt like I didn't fall in love with him, but I feel like I should be saying that I did. Are you one of those people who confuses who Tim is and who Kieran? Like absolutely. Which one's which? Which one's Kieran? Kieran's the one that left for his grandma. What colour hair? Blonde. Yeah, they good. kind of both have like blonde hair. No. Is Tim brunette or is Tim's it dirty brunette. blonde? It's like a dishwater blonde. There you go. I don't know who Jamie Doran oh, is. Zara. Jamie. The media, the media really came for him and tried to twist his story into quite a creepy narrative. Oh, yeah, so true. He yeah. wasn't portrayed particularly well at all and then there was a lot of backlash about his portrayal as well. Yes, whether yes. or not he should have been on the show in the first place. Yes. Totally. Brittany Hockley as well. Yes, coming back. How many years ago was Brittany Hockley on the show? She was Honey Badger, wasn't she? God, they all kind of blend into the one season, I'm, don't I, they? It's really hard to distinguish, but I, I think I've watched the first few episodes of this. Will you? Yeah, probably. I mean, Bachelor and Paradise is tricky because we've seen the kind of like first cut of what it looks like before they put in all the saturation of colour and they put in the music and they stitch it all together. And let me tell you, listeners, <laughs> it is not an entertaining show without any of that post-production work. I have to say that was one of the saddest afternoons of our lives when we got sent to <laughs> a really pre-pre-cut and we were sitting there being like, is this what it is? It would be like stripping back a McDonald's chicken nugget and realising what is actually inside. It was so depressing. My second story, Ben Affleck and Anna de Armas photographed kissing on the beach in Costa Rica. That is from Laney Gossip. I only put this in because I'm like, look, I'm looking for positive, funny, light news stories right now. Ben Affleck has moved on with his co-star. How do we feel about it? Benny Boy is back. Benny Boy is oh, back. He's trying to be back. So he's starring in a movie beside Anna de Armas and they've been papped not just in Costa Rica, but they were papped on a holiday in Cuba just before Costa Rica. So a pretty lovely life for those two at the moment. Though Actually, that's so unfair. If someone took a photo of me and was like, oh, what a nice life. Anyway, what? what? <laughs> Wait, stop. What are you trying to say? Okay, man, I was, okay. I found myself <laughs> thinking that I was getting quite dismissive of them on holiday and I thought that's nasty because everyone 
everyone deserves a holiday. But you never vocalised any disdain for them. Yeah, I know. So I jumped really quickly and <laughs> forgot that I was on a podcast where you need heaps of context for people <laughs> to understand what you're saying. I will say, Anna de Armas, I know it's irrelevant, but wow. I, it's oh. hard to look at her. She is that gorgeous. She She's beautiful. She is something like, good work, Ben Affleck. Not your biggest fan, but wow. Good yeah. job. <laughs> you must be doing something right. <laughs> My third story, a Batuta advocate story about Tom Hanks in quarantine has fooled the rest of the world. That is from Junkie, pedestrian's main competitor. I know. Look, I know we promised this was a virus-free podcast. <laughs> However, hang on, a virus that must not be named free podcast. No, no, and a virus-free. We're not infecting the phones of the people that are listening. <laughs> Anywho, this was a pretty funny story. So what actually happened was, as we know, Tom Hanks came out publicly and said, hi, I've got... <clears throat> that thing and I'm on <laughs> I'm on the Gold Coast and the Batuta Advocate put out a story about this. Mish, did you see what the Batuta Advocate put out? Yeah, and I have a confession because I pretended to know what it was about until I exposed myself for having no fucking idea and now it's really embarrassing. Exactly. So the Batuta Advocate wrote an article that was Gold Coast Hospital staff roll in a volleyball to keep Tom Hanks company in quarantine and it's this photoshopped image of Tom Hanks in hospital with, you know, old mate Wilson, Wilson the volleyball and Michelle turns to me and goes, I mean, like, I just don't know who Wilson is. And I was like, I haven't seen any movie on the planet. Like, I've seen no fucking movies. Have you not seen Castaway? And she said, no. I feel really nervous. <laughs> I've never seen Castaway and I have no idea what Wilson the volleyball is. So Wilson is Tom Hanks's friend in Castaway. He's his only friend on this island. And what people thought when this article went viral was that a lot of people in America thought it was true. Maggie Haberman, which is like the New York <laughs> Times chief political writer, retweeted the Petita Advocate. And then someone screenshotted that saying, like, I despair for the world when someone like Maggie Haberman doesn't know this is satire. <laughs> then all of these people had to come out and debunk it being like, no, the Gold Coast Hospital <laughs> didn't roll in Wilson for Tom Hanks. Inclusive of Snopes. Snopes, which is like a conspiracy theory debunking site or a mm. fake news debunking site, had to come out with their own explanation as to what happened. I loved this so much. I mean, yes, I didn't know what Wilson the Volleyball was. However, I loved this unravelling of the story so much because I feel like the Batuta Advocate became so big in Australia that we really lost that beautiful magic of boomers commenting on their posts being like, this isn't true or like, how could this be? It got too big. Everyone realised that it was a satirical website. So for it to go global and for all these people just to not realise was just so delicious. I know. My fourth story, Meghan and Harry's radically reimagined press strategy is already here. That is from Vanity Fair. For anyone who missed this, it was Meghan and Harry's final royal engagement in the middle of last week. And for it, Meghan and her team handpicked three journalists to join her in Buckingham's Palace 1844 room. Two of those journalists ended up writing very sympathetic, emotional first-person pieces about Meghan's emotional turmoil. And Zara, I think this is so interesting because it definitely marks a shift in how Meghan and Harry will share their lives with the public. Yeah, and are people saying this because they are suddenly wanting to sort of feed out tiny pieces of themselves in the last few weeks of their royal duties? Uh, I'm not sure about that. I think there's a little bit of disdain and people are a little bit annoyed because they're saying that they're cherry-picking journalists that they have a close relationship with, which no, is so shit. bullshit because every celebrity who's not a royal does that. But everyone does that ever like yeah. you pick the journos you trust like yeah. obviously I think people are just pissed off that they've left anyway and they'll just find any little thing to hold them up and kind of like have a whack at them for and I really don't think a journalist is going to write a sympathetic personal essay or a sympathetic personal story about what Megan and Harry might be going through just for the sake of doing that like disagree I disagree 
I do think they would feel something in order to write that. Like I don't think they're going to make it up. Now, whether that feeling is born from a personal relationship is another thing altogether. But I do think the feelings of the journalist are going to be legitimate for that story to be written. Yeah, true, but it's very biased. But then like power too. If you want to have biased reporting on your life, you're a celebrity. You're more than entitled to do that. My fifth and final story, Kristen Stewart clutches a banjo and an acoustic guitar as she shops for rare instruments during an outing in Los Angeles. That's from the Daily Mail. Look, I don't really have anything to say about this. I just thought it was an interesting news story. Clutches a banjo and an acoustic (laughs) guitar. As she also, I love the second half of this headline, right? As she shops for rare instruments. What's the (laughs) definition of a rare instrument? Like, is, is the world separated into rare and mainstream? I would argue on the list of instruments that are rare or not rare. Acoustic guitars, pretty not rare. Banjos, maybe middle of the rung. And do we consider something perhaps like the flute or the clarinet as mainstream or rare? (laughs) (laughs) Look, clarinet would be pretty rare. What's your favourite instrument? We are thoroughly non-musical. So mainstream, I'm going to say a piano. Oh, can you play? Um, Absolutely not. Nah, I had lessons, like keyboard lessons when I was a kid and I gave up because I'm a quitter. I I quit. I have have one least favourite instrument and it's the recorder and that will never change. What? The recorder. Did they not make you learn that in high school or primary school? No, I never did the recorder. (gasps) Traumatised to this day. (laughs) That's all for the day's cookie (laughs) journey. Thank you for that. Bye. Three, two, one. Does a publisher ever have the right to pull a book? That's the question people are asking this week after publishing house Hachette pulled filmmaker Woody Allen's new memoir just one month before its scheduled publication. The controversy was a layered one. You see, an imprint of Hachette also published Ronan Farrow's best-selling book Catch and Kill last year. Ronan Farrow is the son of Woody Allen and Farrow's sister, Dylan Farrow, has long accused Woody Allen of sexual abuse as a child. Ronan stands by his sister. After the book was announced, to much backlash and public pressure, the publishing house cancelled the book. But is that actually censorship? And if it is censorship, what does it mean to silence someone like Woody Allen who has never been convicted of sexual abuse? Mish, tell me what your initial thoughts were when the story broke. Initial thoughts? How ludicrously stupid and foolish of a publication house like Hachette to go with Woody Allen and to sign him to their publishing house and to pay him to write this book if they were then going to flip on him so quickly. You don't walk into a decision like this flippantly. You don't sign up a man like Woody Allen with his very murky past and the allegations against him without considering what the public reception to that book deal will be like, do you? No, or how Ronan Farrow will respond. Like there was a reason that they kept this from the public until one month before publication. Like it's not that common for a book only to be announced a month before publication. Second to that, I think if you're deliberately hiding it from Ronan Farrow, and I think one of the biggest pet peeves that Ronan had, among like a lot of others, was the fact that there were clearly trying to hide this from employees and him knowing full well what the response was going to be when it got out so it's kind of like if you're hiding it from people you kind of know that that backlash is going to come yeah like this was inevitable it was so inevitable that people were going to be furious that they were commissioning this book and releasing this book why did they not consider 
that response when it was so obvious? And why did they then so quickly, it was in four days, we'll get into it in a little bit, backflip. Before we talk about the nitty gritty of this, Zara, I do want to flesh out the family tree and exactly what the allegations are and how this works because it's a very confusing family and there's a lot of moving cogs and parts. So let me just lay it out for you. I mean, I'm the queen explainer of all things here at Shameless, so I'll try my best Karen meme 101 tactics. Off you go. Right. The family tree. Woody Allen is an American director and writer whose career spans more than six decades. He, in the 80s, was in a long-term relationship with actress Mia Farrow, who starred in many of his films. Together, they had one biological child, who is Ronan Farrow. Now, the family splintered drastically when, in 1992, naked photographs of Mia Farrow's adopted daughter, Soon-Yi Previn, were discovered in Woody Allen's apartment. So this is 12 years since they've been together, naked photos of her adopted daughter found in his apartment. From there, it emerged that the 22-year-old, Soon-Yi, and the 56-year-old, Woody Allen were engaged in an affair and had been for some time. Woody had known Previn since she was about 10 years old. Obviously, that raises so many eyebrows in the media. Lots of headlines come out about that. Lots of questions about how does it work that you can know this person since they're a child and then enter a sexual relationship with them in later life? And is that a problem? And if it is, how do we flesh that out? Things get even muddier when six months later, a sexual assault allegation is levelled at Allen when his estranged wife now, Mia Farrow, says that he sexually assaulted Mia Farrow's seven-year-old adopted daughter, Dylan, in August of 1992. Now, it's really important to note those allegations from Mia Farrow, which Dylan Farrow and Ronan Farrow have upheld for the last few decades were investigated twice no charges have ever been laid and no convictions have ever been laid either so as it stands despite the imperfect nature of our legal system and the US's legal system he is an innocent man he hasn't been proven guilty yeah and I think that's an important point that will kind of feed through this entire discussion I think when it comes to his book being cancelled from Hachette there are two separate issues here there is no doubt as we said earlier that Hachette was stupid to secretly sign Woody while promoting Ronan Farrow's book and there are definite issues around loyalty and betrayal there for sure but second to that I think is a conversation around whether the book should exist at all and I think that's where the conversation has sort of evolved to can you cancel a book and what does that say about censorship I think the hardest part about this story and the hardest part about doing this segment is that I'm actually not sure if I have a firm opinion on this at all I think I would be flatly lying if I said that I did and I'm not sure I can lie about it like I don't know what to think I am pulled in so many directions over so many clever opinions that exist on the internet I feel like it might take a bit more wisdom for me to find out where I sit on the matter but I'm going to kind of flesh a few of those ideas out for you guys anyway. Mm, Totally. I think my overriding feeling right now having read many of the pieces having had a few days to kind of ruminate on this and figure out where I stand is that Woody Allen is innocent and yes I feel sticky and slimy when I think of some of the things he has been accused of. I also feel slimy when I think of the fact that he entered into an affair with his wife's adopted daughter. I think that is gross. I don't think there's anyone on the planet who would say that is ordinary okay behaviour. However it's not criminal behaviour and he was within his right just as soon Yi Previn was in her right to enter into that relationship when she was 22 years old. I do think this story can be told and Woody Allen's story can be told because, yes, his personal behaviour has been questionable. 
but it's never been condemnable. We don't know whether or not he assaulted Dylan Farrow. It has been investigated by people who know far more than us and nothing has been reached. I acknowledge that the legal system is by no means perfect and we should absolutely listen to Dylan Farrow when she tells her story and I have a lot of time for Dylan Farrow. However... Woody Allen also has the right to write a book. Yeah, so this is what's really interesting. I think we have spoken time and time again on this podcast about how hard it is to prove historic allegations of sexual abuse. Like it is almost impossible to do that. So it's interesting when we often throw this word innocent around, like it, just because you're not guilty, does that make you innocent? Like I know that's a much broader conversation that's probably too dense to get into now, but I am interested in that thought. Innocent until proven guilty is the cornerstone of legal process. So he has to be. Yeah, well, I agree with that, but I also don't feel comfortable with that. And I know that's an unpopular opinion, but I think when it comes to historic allegations of sexual abuse and when they're that hard to prove, it is hard to say that Mm. anyone who isn't guilty of sexual abuse is therefore innocent. And cleared. And I'm not saying he's cleared. I know. I know. I think it's just like the semantics around Mm. that word that are hard to swallow. I think first and foremost for me, I will admit I had this very juvenile perhaps response to the book being cancelled. I think I was elated. I was like, okay, cool. Case closed. This was the result we all wanted, right? I like Ronan. I respect his work. I took his... And as well as Hachette employees, like Hachette employees walked out over this and I wanted to take their lead on it. But then after I felt that, people I respect and admire also came out and said it was a bad thing and I was forced to really dive a bit deeper. Hadley Freeman wrote a very interesting piece in The Guardian this week, Mish, I'm not sure if you read it, Mm. but she wrote, it would have been one thing if Hachette had never agreed to publish Alan's memoir in the first place. Fair enough, that's a publisher's prerogative. But for them to sign him, edit him and then fearfully drop him him because some people object is a terrible precedent for a publisher to set. I do understand that bone that a lot of journos and media people are picking at the moment being like, as we said at the start, like you were stupid to sign him, but maybe you should have followed through with that. Like you didn't have to sign him and not signing him is not censorship. It's signing him and then cancelling him that people are considering the massive issue. Yeah. Well, it's falling down to mob mentality. And I don't necessarily think that mob mentality in this instance is overly damaging. I do think it is slightly damaging to cancel his book on the back of it. But the idea that a whole bunch of people can band together and basically riot for someone's story to not be told when there's no real legitimate concrete excuse for that to happen is troublesome to me. But then the other mind that I mean, because I agree with that. I mean, as journalists, you have the question of like, okay, well, if we're silencing one person, what happens next? And I think that's what Freeman went on to say. She said, you can argue that Alan is a beneficiary of a system that favours the rich and powerful, but you should still want him to publish his memoir because suppressing words, ideas and even people never works in the long run. Let the guilty damn themselves if guilty they be and trust the public to see the truth for themselves. Arguing for silence will only work to your disadvantage because one day the one who will be silenced is you. And it's a great point. But is it censorship when there are so many avenues for these words to find the world? Like, does censorship mean the same thing for every person? Could this be considered a purely economic decision for the publisher? Like, Hachette employees are walking out of the building on the job because they want to protect their kind of highest selling author, which is Mm. Ronan Farrow. Farrow is 32. His book Catch and Kill was an instant bestseller, having sold more than 200,000 copies, which is a fuckload of book copies. Woody Allen is 84. I am going to go out on a limb 
here and say that that Ronan Farrow has far more books left in him than Woody Allen and backing Ronan Farrow is smart business. Like, is that reason enough for Hachette employees to walk out wanting to protect their brightest star? Well, I mean, I wouldn't call it smart business. Smart business would have been not going near the Woody Allen memoir in the first place. I mean, it's probably the most practical and logical decision to get themselves out of the clusterfuck that they created. I think the one element of this story that is difficult for everyone to swallow is the massive grey question mark over it in that we have to sit with the uncomfortable reality that we don't know about Woody Allen and we don't know about Dylan Farrow and we will never know. There is every likelihood that Woody Allen will pass away one day and he will have this question mark over him and some people will want to read his work and know his life story because he has greatly influenced other people in his industry like Wes Anderson, like Greta Gerwig, like Judd Apatow and filmmakers and creatives want to know what he did. He he is in some ways a genius. I know he hasn't created many great works since 2013 but before then he did create hugely influential work he is hugely talented at what he does and this gray question mark I don't think undoes that I think he still has something to offer to people in that industry who want to know that story and do feel like his work influenced them I think for many people though it's not the idea that he's not influential it's beyond this point how much more influential does he need to be like can the work stand alone for itself up until this point and does there need to be much more I think that's the question that people don't know how to answer but do we want to live in a world where a question marks means that we make just a snap judgment a snap statement where we go you know what we're never going to hear from you again you're done now I think that is so dangerous to look at someone and go there's a question mark over your head we don't know and therefore we're all just going to say you know what we're just going to cross you out because it's easier that way because that's the easy alternative to say we're not going to hear from you No, I don't think it is the easier alternative. And I would doubt that there are many people listening to this podcast who wouldn't agree with what you just said. I don't think anyone wants to live in a world where a question mark is enough. I think the question for me here is not was he quote unquote censored because of the question mark over him, but what if his book was cancelled purely for economic business reasons? And what if that book still makes its way out into the world because he has enough money to publish it? Is this whole conversation kind of void? The internet does change things. The internet gives him the doors and the ability to just self-publish anyway and release it. I mean, we're sitting on a podcast where we literally could self-publish and give ourselves a platform. So he's lucky that this is happening in 2020 as opposed to 1920 because if he was de-platformed by a publisher like Hachette, then he'd have no fucking hope, basically. I would be interested as to who owns the rights to this book. If Hachette owns the rights and they cancel it, I wonder if he can release it under another publisher and the legalities of that will be very interesting. I would have imagined that they would have signed a contract where Hachette would have owned the rights, but I probably think if they were cancelling the book, they would have to hand the book back. Like, yeah. I can't imagine a world where they'd hold on to that book. That would be quite dodgy, (laughs) if I may say so myself. I really don't know what to think. I think the truth is my gut says I did not want Hachette to publish it. I have to be honest about that. But my brain says that a smart and reasonable thing to think is that they probably should have pushed ahead anyway. Yeah, I think I'm of the opinion that light is the best disinfectant and you are never going to achieve anything by trying to silence people. It's best to let people have their voice and then make your judgment once they've spoken. I think that's all we have time for. I think it is. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shameless. We so appreciate your support. The best way to get behind us as independent podcasters is to basically subscribe to the podcast on your podcasting app. If you're on Apple Podcasts, there's a big purple subscribe button. Please press that. Leave a review if you so fancy. On Spotify, you can press follow 
that shoots us up the charts in both apps. It helps new listeners find us and it helps us grow and keep giving you podcasts every single week. So we so appreciate that. And we love giving you podcasts every single week. So on that note, we will be back in your ears on Thursday with another In Conversation. Hooray! Bye! Bye, guys. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.